0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want to inspire you to be in your financial front seat by knowing what you own, what you owe, how to reach your goals, and by having an annual checkup. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Welcome to the first live Her Money podcast. I am Jean Chatsky. We are in an amazing facility called the PRX Podcast Garage. That's the hashtag PRX Podcast Garage, which is in the Alston section of Boston, which I'm told is not quite Cambridge, but not quite not Cambridge. And we're thrilled to have some of our listeners, our friends, our community in the room with us. So this is going to be a little bit of a different conversation. We are going to involve some voices that you may or may not have heard before, but we are going to kick it off with Bridget Madrian. And I first came in contact with Bridget. I It must have been a good decade ago, maybe 15 years ago. I, I'm always on the lookout for academic researchers who are really, really smart, particularly about money, and who have insight into what it takes to get people who are human to do the right things as far as our money is concerned. And I don't remember exactly who it was. It was one of your colleagues who I was on the phone with him. And I said, all right. Who else do I talk to? Because that's always the last question when you're a reporter. Who else should I talk to? And he said, give Bridget a call. Bridget is the Aetna Professor of Public Policy and Corporate Management at the Harvard Kennedy School. Before coming to Harvard in 2006, she was on the faculty at Wharton, the University of Chicago, the Harvard University Economics Department, There's no way that you are this old, by the way. (laughs) She is also the co-director of the Household Finance Working Group at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Bridget looks fabulous because she is on her way to the symphony. So she will exit after we do this interview with her husband and head out to hear some wonderful music. But before that, we'll have some amazing conversation. So let's start with something that is a very frequent topic on this show, um, 401k plans. Yeah, I've done a lot of work on 401k plans. You have done a lot of work, and you've done a lot of work on people who are auto-enrolled in their 401k plans. I'm a big cheerleader for auto-enrollment because I feel like this technology actually gets people to do the right thing on their own behalf when so often we don't do the right things on our own behalf. Tell tell us a little bit about your work.
2: Yeah. So I started working on savings in 401k plans probably about 20 years ago. And uh, I had met with a company and they wanted someone to analyze the savings behavior of their employees in a more rigorous statistical fashion than the consultants they were working with. And I knew enough at the time to know that there was probably an interesting project in there, so I agreed to do it. And then kind of offhandedly they said, well, we started automatically enrolling employees in the savings plan about a year ago. And as soon as they said that, I knew there was something that would be really, really interesting. And I don't think they understood the impact that automatic enrollment had had on their employees because no one had looked at the data really carefully. And I started analyzing it and uh, it popped out pretty quickly that the newly hired employees, which was the group that was uh, subject to this automatic enrollment regime, that they had a savings plan participation rate in the 401k that was about 50 percentage points higher than the employees that had been hired even a year earlier and weren't automatically enrolled. And so then the the interesting academic question was to understand why. So this was clearly a, a savings technology that worked to get people into the savings plan. And then I've been you know, doing research for the past 20 years trying to understand why is it that you get such different outcomes based on whether you enroll people in the savings plan and they have to opt out or make them
1: sign up? Well, and the bottom line is that human beings, because we're human, are not great savers, right? I mean, I remember having a conversation with you and it, it's been years now where I asked you what works to get people to save money and you said automation and I said okay good what else works and you said automation <laughs> that, that is the single best technology uh, there are other things that
2: work but but uh, if you try and if you think about why is it that people have a hard time saving. So why in the absence of automatic enrollment are savings plan participation rates so much lower? You know, there are a handful of things that that keep on popping up in my research and in the rest of the literature. So one is that uh, we procrastinate. So the benefit of saving accrues in the future. There's not any immediacy to getting it done today. So we procrastinate. And automatic enrollment solves that problem because it means if you're a procrastinator, you're in the plan instead of out of the plan. We have short attention spans. So usually the 401k plan is not you know waving there saying, hey, hey. Look at me. Look at me. Sign up. It's kind of back there in the background. Uh, and so automatic enrollment doesn't require you to pay attention. So it solves that problem. And then we know that many people are overwhelmed when it comes to thinking about the other decisions that have to be made if you want to save. And in a 401k plan, that would be how much should I save and what kind of an investment allocation should I choose? And those two pieces of the decision, which are pretty complicated, are another reason that people procrastinate. They might have good intentions, but they don't want to do it today because it's too hard, and automatic enrollment solves that problem. So from from a behavioral science standpoint, we have these kind of three three looming challenges that keep people from saving and automatic enrollment is like the magic bullet that solves all of them at once. Kind of the miracle drug.
1: Of, of personal <coughs> finance. Yeah, I, I the gateway drug, right? Yeah. I just spent a few days with my son, who is 24, who works in a job where he does not have a 401k. And we over, I don't know, three, four months ago, we went online, we opened an automatic, uh, an IRA a Roth IRA actually, with an automatic contribution every single month because he's certainly making enough money to contribute. And he sat down with me over dinner and he said, Mom, I don't think you're going to want to hear this. And I thought, oh, God, he quit. He quit. And instead he said, I really wish I would have done this sooner. And he's only 24, but I had been like nudging because that's what we do for a good couple of years to get him to the starting gate. So what do we do for all of those people who are freelancers and entrepreneurs and small business owners who don't have these plans? That is a great question. So first of
2: all, your son is so lucky to have you as a mother, right? Well, he might
1: disagree <laughs> occasionally, but thank you.
2: So my, my daughter, who's 22, a couple of summers ago, she uh, had her first job uh, as, a, as a researcher over the summer at Boston Children's Hospital. And they automatically enrolled her into the savings plan and she was so excited because she knew I would be so <laughs> excited. <laughs> um, so one of the interesting problems in the, in the US is we know automatic enrollment works, but about uh, half of a workforce isn't saving in a 401k plan and about uh, a third of the workforce uh, doesn't have doesn't even have access to a plan at work. So it's not like they've been offered the option and they've said, I don't want to take it up. They're in small employers that aren't even offering uh, a 401k retirement plan. So the interesting thing that's going on in the policy world is uh, a number of states are now trying to use automatic enrollment to help employees at firms where the firm doesn't sponsor a plan. So the very first one is uh, Oregon. So mm-hmm. a little bit over a year ago, Oregon got its program called Oregon Saves off the ground. Uh, it's being rolled out over the over like a three or four year period, uh, depending on the size of your company. But they started out with some firms that volunteered to be part of an initial pilot. But the, the vision is, uh, if you're an employer in Oregon, your employees have to be given the option to save, and if you don't want to offer a 401 plan, they won't force you to do it. They've got the Oregon Saves Plan, and you can just direct employee contributions into the Oregon Saves Plan. You don't have to match it, uh, but they're setting up an account and requiring you to automatic enroll em- automatically enroll employees. And to do it with
1: paycheck withdrawal. And to do it
2: with paycheck withdrawal. Uh, and California. New York. uh, Yeah, New York. California's starting in in another few weeks. They had an announcement earlier this week or maybe end of last week that their um, website was live for doing this and they're gonna start out once again piloting with some big employers and I think the hope of many of us working in this space is that we'll get some good data from the experiences of states like Oregon and California and, and Illinois and New York that will then
1: inform a national policy which would of course be much more effective than state by state yeah. by state. Unfortunately what you're seeing in your work I know is that automatic enrollment sometimes results in more 401k what we call leakage. Yeah. So so can you talk about what leakage is? And why it happens?
2: Yeah. So leakage is the term that gets used in the industry when people take their money out of the four hundred and one k plan before they hit retirement. So the money is leaking out of the system. They borrow it. Well, they can they can borrow it, but they can also just withdraw. They can also just withdraw it. And the bigger problem is actually with the withdrawals. The the borrowing happens. It's pretty prevalent. About. You know, in the in the research I've done, about half of the workers we've studied over a seven or eight year period borrow money from their 401k plan. Uh, the reason it's not a huge problem is because you can only borrow if you're still working and the loan gets paid back through payroll deduction and for the same reason that payroll deduction works to get you saving in the first place, it works to, to repay your Uh, repay your loan. The U.S. is an interesting contrast to many other countries that have um, 401k-like retirement systems in that we make it pretty easy for people to access their money before retirement. So in the worst case scenario you might pay a 10 percentage point penalty and in some cases there wouldn't be any penalty at all. In other countries the penalty rates are much much higher like 50 percent or you just flat out can't even access the money. The taxes so, are not a deterrent? Well, because if you really need the money, 10% isn't, you know, you could, you know, lots of people would take out a loan where the effective interest rate would have the same effect as a 10% penalty.
1: So. People think it's really fun to ask personal finance journalists what's the worst financial move you've ever made in oh. your life. I, I can't. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked this question, and my answer is always the same. I did that. Yeah. Yeah. I did it in 1987. I left my first job. I didn't understand that I had a 401k, much less what it was or how it worked. And so when I quit my job. I got this nice check in the mail. I I went shopping. I bought some clothes for my next job. I was very happy. But years later when I learned, I went back and I figured out how much that money would have been worth and I was no longer happy. (laughs) Is, Is this an education problem? Yeah, so, so just to, uh, to make you feel a tiny bit
2: better, you're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Fidelity, which I, I noted as uh, sponsoring the podcast, uh, sponsored a survey uh, a few years ago, and they asked uh, defined contribution savings plan participants uh, if they had ever taken out a loan or if they, had, if they had ever taken out a withdrawal, and then they asked if you had to do it over again, would you? And two-thirds of the people who would taken money out of the plan said that they regretted doing so. So, you know, I think part of it is an education problem, helping people understand that this, you know, it might seem like a small amount of money, you know, a few thousand dollars. And, of course, it's easy to think of all of the things you could do with it. Sure. and if you left it alone, how much would that grow to be? But it's also, you know, coming back to the reason automatic enrollment works, because the savings decision is hard and we're making it easy. With the leakage taking money out of the plan, it's kind of the opposite, which is we've, uh, it's easy to think of things to do with the money today, and we've made it easy for people to access the money
1: whereas other countries have made it much more difficult. I I want to talk about the issue that 401k savings have actually become people's emergency savings in a second. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody that Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. And we are working together to encourage women to be in the front seat when it comes to our financial health. And that's because women are in the driver's seat. In so many aspects of our lives, our careers, our families, and yet when it comes to making decisions about money, too many of us just delegate to somebody else. One thing is clear, when it comes to investing, you always want to be in the front seat by knowing what you own, knowing what you owe, what your goals are, and by having an annual financial checkup. And you can learn more at fidelity.com frontseat. We are talking with Harvard's Bridget Madrian. And you have talked about the fact that 401k savings have become, for too many people, this emergency cushion because people don't have emergency cushions. Tell us about sidecars. What's a sidecar, and how is that the solution? Yeah. So uh,
2: let me just provide a tiny bit more context. So. Uh, If you survey people and ask them, you know, do you have enough money to cover a financial emergency of, you know, $400 or $2,000, you know, an expense that could include a car repair or a trip to the emergency room or a roof leak or, you know, things that happen to people fairly regularly, a stunningly large fraction of people in the U.S. and in other countries will tell you that they would have a hard time coming up with that amount of money. So, but, but just cuz you don't have the money doesn't mean life stops happening. Right. So then the question is what do you do when life happens? And some people resort to costly forms of credit, put it on the credit card, uh, take out a payday loan, but it turns out if you have had a job where you've got you have now some money in your 401k plan, that's another uh, viable alternative if that's the only source of savings you have. So we see a lot of people tapping into their 401 plan. And the problem with this from a behavioral or psychological standpoint is that we've set up the 401 the system to help people accumulate a lot of money because retirement is a problem Uh, or a stage of life where you need a lot of money. It's kind of like when when you bake cookies at home, you might have good intentions to only eat one or two, (laughs) but when the cookies come out of the oven and there's a whole tray of cookies there, you kind of just keep on eating them because they're there, right? Once you've opened the cookie jar, you might as well just eat a whole bunch of cookies. So we have this this you know equivalent of the cookie jar, the 401k plan that had has money in it to cover you for decades in retirement. And now you've opened up the cookie jar for your, you know, your car repair or whatever other thing happened in life, and it's very tempting to take more money than you actually need. So, the sidecar proposal is a proposal to couple an emergency savings account with a 401k plan, uh, and coupling them would allow you a couple of advantages. So, the first is that you're clearly designating one piece of that account to be for retirement and another piece to be for when life happens. And sure. by just putting a label on the retirement piece, this is the retirement account, not the do anything at any time as you want account. You're making it cognitively more difficult to use that account for non-retirement reasons. And then you also get this kind of elegance if you can link them together in the right way, where you can make it really easy for the consumer from a budgeting standpoint. So just to make the math easy, we could take 10% of your pay out of your paycheck every month and we could split it across these two accounts. But the goal of the emergency account is not to accumulate decades' worth of income. It's to accumulate a little bit. So once you reach that threshold amount, you could then direct all of the additional savings into the retirement account, and you could also have it set up so that the employer can provide a match on the money that you want to go into the emergency account, but the match can go into the retirement savings account. So it's a way to kind of... Um, serve two goals at the same time. Is this happening? Is this happening? So there are a lot of. This, this yes, is brilliant. Yes. This needs to happen. <laughs> yes, we are hoping. We are hoping it's going to happen. So we've been talking with a couple of organizations in the U.S. Uh, Prudential has a product that they've just come up with to help do this. We are working with, with uh, Nest in the UK. So Nest is runs the Oregon saves equivalent mm-hmm. in the UK to get people uh, saving and we're working to pilot this at a couple of large employers in the UK in the you know, next months and years ahead. And then hopefully we'll have some data on how well it works and that'll provide some, you know, impetus for other companies to pick it up.
1: I've always thought that banks should just name an account an emergency account. That that I mean cuz I'm a big mental accounting person. If I have a stash of money that I'm putting away whether it's for college or a vacation or uh, something else, I just label it. You know, this is the college money, and this is the vacation money. And it helps me know that that's what the money is for. And I I've thought that if banks would just say, this is your emergency money, then people would treat it as such. Am I loopy? No, I think, no, I think that's right. <laughs> and and what, what you'd really like is for the banks to
2: give you the ability to segment your quote unquote savings account into as many different envelopes well, they or do. jars, they do as that. You they want. just don't
1: make it transparent. Yes, right. Yes. So, so it's possible. It's just not
2: easy. It's just not easy, exactly. And and I know with at least some banks that their technology is is old enough that it's actually not particularly easy technologically for the bank to do it. So it's actually some of the newer uh, kind of kind of uh, financial institutions that have come up in the last few years and started their technology from scratch. It's actually easier for them to do it, but it, but it, it, it kind of cues in to the way people tend to think about their money, and what you want to do is kind of match the solution to the problem that people have. And right now, uh, at least on the savings margin, I don't think the prevailing solution, which is a savings account, matches, completely matches the problem that people have.
1: As we wrap this conversation up, top three tips for, for people who just want to be smarter about how we're saving or maybe how we're teaching our kids to save, what, what's, what's your one, two, three? Okay, top, top three tip, uh, number one, don't procrastinate,
2: just, just do it. Uh, set aside a time, give yourself a deadline, make someone else hold you accountable to that deadline and just you know, get it done, whether it's starting to save or opening a new account and, and labeling it or, or doing a financial checkup. Make a plan and get it done. Uh, Number two is don't let the better be the enemy of the good. So I think a lot of times our procrastination is driven by not knowing what the best course of action is, but not doing anything is almost surely the worst course of action. (laughs) So don't let the better be the enemy of the good. Do something good and realize that you can go back and revisit it uh, later on. You know There are very few financial decisions Uh, and at least until you reach retirement that are irreversible. So, uh, you know, do it today. And then, you know, don't be afraid of making mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes with their money. Don't beat yourself up over it, but, you know, try and set yourself up so if the mistakes happen, they're just not, they're not very big.
1: Even if you pull money out of a 401k. (laughs) Bridget Madrian, thank you so much. Big hand for Bridget. That is terrific, and we are going to bring up Kelly Hultgren and have a little Q and A with our audience, a mailbag, a live mailbag, and Bridget's going to the symphony with her husband. So,
0: thanks, Gene. It's in the been a rain. pleasure.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Kelly Hultgren, our producer, Hi. has joined me. I have to say, I think that these sidecars could be very effective if we can get employers to start implementing them. But they are the first that I've heard of them. And I I wonder, we've got a number of people. We're in Boston today. We've got a number of people from Fidelity in the audience. Have you guys been hearing about sidecars? I like the idea that it doesn't have to be too large as well. I mean, I think this idea of a three to six month emergency cushion gets daunting for a lot of people when really what you need is a few thousand dollars that can get you out of a jam so that you don't have to put it on a credit card or pull money out of your retirement account. Kelly and I are going to open it up for your questions. We are so excited that you came out tonight. This is your opportunity to ask us whatever you want to know. Hi, I'm Kelly Gushu, and I
0: actually run an online platform called Personal Finance Warrior. So I help women take action on managing their money. So I've been following Jean, so super excited, like seeing a celebrity here. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And so my question, Jean, and then Kelly, if you have some uh, ideas, um, for, for women to talk about money, so one of the biggest mistakes is women don't talk enough about money. And so I'm curious to hear if you have some practical suggestions encouraging women to talk about money.
1: Um, absolutely, and I'm sure Kelly does as well. In part, I think it's a muscle. You know, I, I have a lot of people in my life who come along and say, I would really like to write a book. And my answer is, So, get up every day and write something. You know, sit down, give yourself an hour, put yourself on the clock. It's not gonna be brilliant the first time it comes out, but just make yourself accountable for doing it. And I think that is a little bit what talking about money feels like for people who don't do it on a regular basis. I mean, people, you guys who listen to this show, you know, I don't like to talk about money with my husband. I, I, There are times when I don't want to be held accountable in the way that I know that he is going to hold me accountable. And so we schedule it. Um, we will put it on the calendar for a weekend afternoon, and we talk about the, whatever things happen to be on our list at that point, and we get through it, and then we go to the movies. Um, it's not that it's going to be easy. It's just that with practice, it gets easier, I think. Well, before my answer, what subjects is he more
0: excited to talk about and what subjects are you more excited (laughs) to talk about?
1: Boy, he is, he's more excited. He likes to get into my business, quite (laughs) frankly. No, he, my husband is, my husband is a, um, He's a really good problem solver. And when I get overwhelmed about money, it's usually not money that I'm overwhelmed about. It's usually time. Hmm. And so our conversations about money often have to do with, well, what can you say no to? Hmm. Which you know is yes. not my favorite question. Nope. Um, what? But we do get into the nitty gritty. We get into... Well, you've only got fifty-five percent of your assets in stocks, and I've got sixty percent of my assets mm-hmm. in stocks, and that means I'm more, you know, aggressive than you are. But I'm eight years older, mm-hmm. and does that make any sense? And then I'll say, well, yes, because I've got this business that I'm investing in, and that counts. And so it, it's a little bit of that too.
0: Okay. So my answer to the question, especially for my peer group, is giving a little to get a little. And it's a reporting trick that Jean taught me early on, too. With money, which is such an emotionally-fueled subject, I find that it's when I'm vulnerable first and I lead with something that is close to me or something I'm thinking about or something that happened to me, it will most likely lead the other person to share as well. Because not all people are inquisitive, or not all people are comfortable just like leading with their personal details or talking taboos. So showing that like I'm comfortable doing it, and hopefully inspiring other people to open up. Great. Otherwise, I just ask. Yeah. And I, you know, I try, and I, um, you know, it's trial and error. Some questions are too aggressive than others. But I find that like you also depend. Like you just read the audience, or you read who you're talking to, and see how comfortable they are, and where they'll go, and just, you know, start somewhere by giving a little.
1: And I think too, having a specific time and place where that's what you're gonna do is helpful. Yeah. You know, we have these her money happy hours and we have groups of women who often don't know each other. It's better if they don't know each other, come together mm-hmm. and talk about money. And that's the purpose. And so it's pretty easy in those scenarios because you know what you've signed up for. Like now. (laughs) Julie.
0: So if I was going to be really smart about real estate, I would wait until I had a 20% down payment and six months of emergency expenses, including all the mortgage payments and all of that stuff. We all live in Boston. And
1: (laughs) we live in New York.
0: Yeah, so you guys have it even worse than we do. Do the rules change when you live in a place where real estate is kind of going out of control, and should we be a little bit more aggressive?
1: Hmm. I think that 20% is a little bit fluid. You know, if you want to buy something, coming up with that 20%, that's a big ask in a city like Boston. If you can get yourself to the point where you've got 10 and you know that you're not overbuying, that you're buying something that is within your grasp, to continue to pay for whether you're in this job or what might be your next job, I think that is an okay thing to do. The other thing that we hear people doing a lot of is buying their second house first, yeah. particularly in a city like this in a, or, or in a city like New York where real estate gets so crazy expensive, that people just say, I want to own something. I want to build equity in something. I know that's a smart move for my financial future. If I can't do it in the apartment that I'm renting because I think it's such a non-value, I'm going to buy a house on the Cape, or I'm going to buy a house somewhere that I know I can afford it, that I know I'll enjoy it, that I know I'll build equity that I might be able to rent out while I'm not there and continue to rent it's just sort of a different way of looking at the same at the same issue I'm just focusing on furnishing my new apartment right
0: now <laughs> I have no thoughts on real estate but I am hearing so I do have some friends who are looking to buy their second homes
1: yeah and I and I worry I mean we're, housing's getting a little soft again I bought my house in May of 2005 which is about the week before the market peaked. If I sold it today and you added in the improvements I made, I would not get my money out. And I'm not sorry that I bought it, and I'm not sorry that I improved it. I got a lot of wonderful years out of it, and I really loved living there, and I'm not gonna lose that much money. But, um, but I do think we have to think about that. That, that it's real estate just it doesn't always go up and up and up and up and so we have to be smart and we have to do a little you know a little chip and joanna Gaines, and and buy the worst house on the best street um, somewhere where there are good schools and and we know that we'll be able to sell it down the road
2: hi my name is allison so my question is I kind of am in the point where my friends have started to buy houses, but I have no interest. and (laughs) I'm just kind of, I guess, looking for your thought. Is there a point? And I know there are all those online calculators that you can actually say for this area with this amount of rent. And I've done the calculations and I'm okay for (laughs) the next 30 years. Not that I want to live in my apartment for the next 30 years, but is there kind of ever a point in life where real
1: estate is something that you should do, or is it just kind of a societal construct? (laughs) As long as the math works out, you're good. I don't think it's something that you have to do as long as you are investing on the side. I mean, the way I look at a mortgage is as a supplemental pool of money for retirement. If you get to the point where you've paid it off and you can use that to help you buy your next place to live. But by the same logic, if you know what the difference is between what you would pay to buy and what you're paying to rent, and you take that money, and you actually do buy term and invest the difference, as they say, in the life insurance world, which is something that not very many people do at all, then you're fine. The question is, what's your plan? For retirement? What's your plan for where you want to live? If you're thinking that you are, you know, going to up and go someplace, then it doesn't make any sense to buy. And I think um, I did a book of money rules a number of years ago. And the very first principle over all the rules is that personal finance is more personal than finance. And that's, you know, we don't have to do what other people do. We just have to understand why we're doing what we're doing and if it makes sense for us. Do we have our happy hour deck? We
0: do. Can I actually you... have a question for a friend. Okay. I'm like actually asking for a friend. It's not me. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> I promise. Um, he texted me and he's like, I'm thinking about pulling out of the stock market. Uh huh. Like, pulling it all out and putting it in a safer haven and. Naturally, I was like, no, no, no. Like, stay calm, carry on. That's what I've learned from you. But then he started hitting me with a lot of data on the projections of what's to happen in the months to come and by April of next year. And I got to a point where I was like, ooh, let me
1: ask (laughs) Gene. So I'm not pulling my money out of the market but i i get what he's saying and i do think it's going to get worse mm. but i think that when it gets worse we will be able to buy more shares at lower prices and that they will eventually come back i mean i wrote this was maybe my worst column ever but in in 2000 seven, I think, Mm -hmm. right before the market started to tumble. I wrote a column for Money Magazine about how I was getting really, really nervous about everything, but I was just going to not look and go for a run. Mm -hmm. And then everything fell out of the sky. And I thought, okay, I was right to be nervous, but I think I was right to be nervous and I was right to do nothing. And I was right to leave my money in and to keep investing and to let it come back. And as long as you believe fundamentally in the underlying strength of this country and the other countries in which you're investing, which means the world, Mm -hmm. basically. As long as you're optimistic on America and the world, I think that you have to just stay in and continue knowing that if you've got any money that you need in the next three to five years, that money comes out because it never belonged there. And otherwise, you're diversified, you're allocated, and, and you keep going. Okay. I mean, I could be wrong. Look, I'm not, I am not an amazing stock picker. Um, we know that about me. <laughs> but I do think that trying to time the markets is just a mistake. Mm-hmm. And even when things feel as tenuous as they feel now, and they've feel as tenuous as I have ever felt them really yeah I'm I mean, i, I do not they do you I mean I, I think our political land our political landscape makes me incredibly scared that,
0: yes that but I haven't been paying attention as long you know like I I've really only been invested the past five years so to hear you say that makes me even more scared
1: I I think the markets have run up <laughs> being too, honest no I think yeah. the markets have run up too far too fast yeah. I think that we are due overdue for a big correction mm-hmm. i think we'll see it and i think we shouldn't pay that much attention to it we should just keep you know keep investing in good companies yeah. in in thousands of good companies at the same time knowing that we don't know what's going to be the next apple or google or facebook but that mm-hmm. we want to own a piece of all of them
0: okay thank you Sure. I'm going to go grab our happy hour deck. Any other questions yes, before, before Kelly we does we do. that? I have a six-year-old, and I've been squirreling away my money into a 529 plan. I have a life insurance policy on him, one of those where it accrues interest, and later on I'll be able to take some of that money out as well to help pay for his college. But I'm looking at what I'm not gaining in his 529 plan. And looking at what I am gaining in my various
1: IRA and retirement plans, how can I be smarter? How is the money in your 529 invested? Is it an age-based portfolio? It is. Is it a conservative age-based portfolio?
0: I don't know. (laughs) Okay.
1: So um, I think... If you haven't over the past few years been seriously gaining for a six-year-old in a 529 age-based portfolio, you're probably in the wrong age-based portfolio Um, because the way the 529s are structured, they're portfolios that are set up by the age of the child, but then there are within each age bracket, there's a conservative, a moderate, and an aggressive. And I moved from aggressive to moderate to conservative as my kids got closer to college. So when my kids, and I just did it with the breaks in the school system. So when my kids were in elementary school, I was aggressive. When they were in middle school, I was moderate. And when they were in high school, I was conservative. So I would look, take a look at how those portfolios have been performing over time and then think about whether you want to shift those assets around a little bit. The other thing to look at is that we know not all 529s are created equal. There's a website called savingforcollege.com that does Morningstar-like ratings of 529 college savings plans. And so you can look at the performance of your plan versus other state plans. You're only allowed to make a switch state to state once a year. But the disadvantage of not being in the plan that's specifically for your state is that if there are any advantages, like in New York, we get a tax deduction for contributing to our plan. And some states do matching dollars. If you're not in your state's plan, then you don't get those things, but the performance may actually be so different that it may not matter. You may be better off being in another state's plan anyway. Yeah, sure. You had mentioned before about mistakes. Could you
0: mention, what are the three biggest mistakes that you see investors
1: make or that you get asked about? Um, sure, so I think, Uh, procrastination is the biggest, right? Not getting in, not getting started, and specifically for women, and Fidelity's done a lot of work on this. We know that there are a lot of women who have a lot of money in savings accounts um, that we haven't put to work for our futures. That's a huge mistake because sitting on the sideline earning 1% is losing money that's big. Not having a plan is a big mistake. If you don't know where you're going, um, it's very, very difficult to get there. And not engaging as an investor, I think, is is a very big mistake. I had told some people here, I was last night and this morning, I was in Plymouth, Massachusetts, at this development called the Pine Hills. It's not a development. It's a planned community. Um, Fabulous, by the way. Like, unbelievably beautiful. But I met a woman this morning who must have been mid-60s, and she said that she and her friends watched me on television 15, 20 years ago when the Beardstown ladies were just coming into the limelight and about 12 of them got together and they started an investment club. And for years, she said, for a dozen years, they maintained this investment club. They picked stocks. They, she said, a few of us got widowed. A few of us got divorced. A few of us stayed married, but we all learned and we all made a lot of money. And the making a lot of money part was really nice. I didn't care as much about that as the we all learned part. But particularly for the ones who got widowed and the ones who got divorced. It was, she was among them, and it was really important for them because they were by themselves and they had to know how to manage their money and they had gotten this confidence that you get by having a seat at the table. And so not, um, not participating, I think, is a, is a really huge mistake. Sure. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm Meredith. I
0: manage a team and some of them are millennials um, in a previous role, whole range of ages. And some of them, more the younger ones, would ask questions whether I participate in the 401k or the stock plan. Um, and when I've asked HR about like, is there a basics financial class? or like, oh no, we can't. Consult on that. Stay away from that. Direct them to HR or a financial advisor. Do you know why they don't have like a 101 for kids coming out of college? Mm -hmm. Or is it illegal?
1: Or it's not illegal. But I do think, from an employer's perspective, sometimes they feel like it's a liability. They don't want, and I don't know if you work in financial services. In which, no, I think employers often don't want to be in the position of advising. the The word "advice" is kind of loaded, and and they don't want to be in the position of advising their employees. But um, I don't think there is there anything illegal about it. I don't think there's anything illegal about it. And I think if you were to facilitate some sort of a book group, maybe, where people got together and and read a particular book and talked about it and learned in that way, or went to a lecture, or, you know, those sorts of things, I'm sure that would be really, really welcomed from the people on your team. I think they're looking for mentorship and they're looking for For guidance clearly. Fabulous. Thank you so much. And thanks Thanks. to all of you for coming and for participating. There is more wine and more cheese and more food. And um, we're just thrilled to have you as part of our community. So thank you so much. Thank you.